Ladies and gentlemen. Good evening. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. You're listening to the Deal Room Podcast. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on business sales and acquisitions. Get across trends in the area and hear the industry's best recount their real life tips, traps, and experiences. Now, here's your host, Joanna Oki. Hi, it's Joanna Oki here and welcome back to the Deal Room Podcast, a podcast proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. Now, today we have part two of our two-part series on why everything other than the price can make or break a deal. And of course, we have back again the fabulous Stephen Groves, Director of Quinn M&A, who deals in mid-market transactions, sales, mergers, acquisitions, and valuation advice. So if you missed part one, then maybe you just might want to head back now and listen to part one because we have a really good discussion there all about a number of matters that buyers and sellers don't necessarily immediately think about as being as important or more important as price um, in their negotiations. And today we are continuing on with that theme. So here we go. Great. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for coming back onto the Deal Room podcast to um, serve up part two of our episode about all about why everything other then the price makes or breaks a deal. Joanna, thanks very much for having me back on. It's an absolute pleasure to be here again. Well, look, I had a lot of fun uh, talking about each of these areas in part one, uh, but we're only halfway through. So um, so let's recap. What were those two areas that we talked about uh, in part one? So we had a discussion about warranties, and it's a really interesting area. Um, as you know, as a, as, a, as a commercial and corporate lawyer, Joanna, warranties uh, get thrown into contracts. Some aren't too risky. Some are, are a little bit dangerous to some sellers to accept, and yeah. accordingly, um, they can cause some difficulties in accepting offers that might have a really great price but have some really funny warranties thrown into a deal. The other interesting area that we spoke about was buyers being unsuited to a business. So mm. we touched on a couple of things, especially with relation to customer contracts and mm. ensuring that they can be assigned because it's it's a high-risk area. Mm. And actually, uh, you know, I know part one was buyers being unsuited, but just before we leave that as a topic, I, I think that it's an interesting reflection on buyers being unsuited as well. I mean, you, you know, it's difficult because I, I guess no seller wants to sit there and say, well, you, you know, am I really going to assess the ability of the buyer to run this business? And to a degree, that's their issue once they take over the business. But there's a lot of discussion around about the high rate of um, failure of M&A transactions from the perspective that quite often they don't meet the target goals. So I guess the usefulness um, in all of this is that, well, I guess, why why is it that a seller should care whether or not they're, the buyer is a good buyer or is unsuited? What, why do you think it's relevant to them? Look, I think there's a couple of factors that come into play. play. Firstly, if buyers are unsuited, um, a transaction may actually never proceed. So yeah. if, if during a sales process, a buyer comes along and a seller thinks, gee, this is great money. Um, they're going to throw throw all this cash at us to, to buy the business. Um, let's go and do due diligence with them and start trying to draft up contract terms. Mm. Everyone goes off on their merry way. Due mm-hmm. diligence is done. And as part of due diligence, you know, a month and a half down the track, 
the buyer turns around and inevitably says, we think there's some significant risks for us mm. in buying this business because we don't believe that we'll be able to service your major customers in their contracts that they have in place. Mm. Or alternatively, you go ahead and you exchange contracts and as part of the uh, the process of finalising the transaction, go out to your major customers and they turn around and say, these buyers that you've put forward to us, we're not going to provide them with any further work. Mm. We don't like them. Or the staff hate them and don't like the culture. There's no cultural fit. So key people start leaking, you know, out, which is particularly problematic if that happens. Absolutely. The, the other interesting area, and today we're going to touch on uh, payment terms. So yeah. In probably 70 to 80% of the transactions that I run, there is always some component of the payment terms which are deferred. Now, it might be an earnout, a commission. Uh, might even be vendor finance, but if there's risks surrounding a buyer, and if there's a if there's an issue that the seller can foresee that might indicate that the buyer won't be suited to running the business long term, that can put a whole host of jeopardy over the uh, deferred payment arrangements, which might yep. be included in a transaction. So it's highly, highly risky. I think you were bang on there. I think that is the highest risk that can come from a uh, buyer that's unsuited to the transaction. Um, it's this this deferred payment scenario because um, there are so many issues uh, that I have seen where issues have arisen in whether or not earnouts have been triggered or um, deferred payments being made or, or whatever the case may be have have related back to this this fundamental um issue between the like the wrong cultural fit or for some reason the buyer just not being suited to the business or the culture of the business as a whole absolutely and i find a, a very pragmatic approach works well and and it comes back to how you prepare the business for sale so um one of the processes that i think is is uh, remarkably valuable to undertake during the preparation process is to put together a target list of buyers, potential buyers, and to undertake some analysis on each of the buyers, firstly to um, assess their capacity. So um, do they have the capacity to buy? Do they have the financial position to enable them to acquire something? And secondly, to assess their capability. Now, um, I'm, I'm lucky in the sense that basically all of the transactions that I advise on are business-to-business sales. So mm. one company selling to a competitor or selling to a company up or down their supply chain. So strategic mm. transactions, which means that for a lot of the bigger companies, we can see their financial position as a starting point. Mm. And we can also see a lot of information about what work they currently do and how suited they are to a transaction. Um, uh, without noting as part of that that a lot of the um, strategic buyers like competitors normally get a lot of advantage as well out of buying companies, which means that they might pay a premium. So by spending time at the start to go through and identify who the buyers are likely to be and who's suited, it can really shortcut the transaction process and uh, eliminate some of the risks of uh, having a, a buyer come through who just won't work uh, in mm. the long run for the transaction. And of course, this is probably um, even more so a, a, a bigger issue for the buyer than the seller, obviously, if they're uh, throwing down money for uh, a company or a business that they're not suited to, and then they only discover this once they're in and, you know, they find value leakage because of uh, the lack of suitability of them. But, um, but, but, 
uh, I find so, but in many instances, buyers are far more keyed into this as an issue because it's more obvious, uh, I guess, you know, coming into a business. Having said that, not all buyers are. So I still think there's a lot of work um, for many buyers to do on, on really drilling further into this. But the point is that it's not as obvious an issue for the sellers. And I guess that's why we're focusing um, on that today. Yeah, look, absolutely. It's not something that many sellers, in my experience, will put great weight on, but I find it to be something that's um, very, very important to look at. Yeah, yeah. And 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 just the last thing that I throw in uh want to throw in there because I guess we've spent quite a bit of time talking about this particular element, but it is an interesting element is if you are a smaller business that's selling into a large business, say for example a listed entity or an offshore based entity, um a, fundamentally there will almost always be very large cultural differences um, and process and systems differences um, and probably pricing differences also, uh, you know, from the customer side. And and so I guess that in and of itself is if you, you are evaluating that type of pool of buyers, which many businesses will be because they will come in with um, a higher price point, I guess that in itself is perhaps a trigger for you to think about this because that can be a bit of a flag. Well, look, absolutely. Um, as part of my practice, I sell quite a, quite a number of professional services firms. It's I don't know how I ended up getting into it, but it does come up quite a bit. And uh, for professional services firms, if if hourly rates are not consistent between the two practices, so the mm. seller and the buyer, um, quite often a transaction just won't work. So mm. I, I think of the example of an accounting firm. Um, if, a, if an accounting firm has partners charging at $400 an hour and they're looking at selling to a firm where partners bill out at $700 an hour, that could mm. be an issue in the sense that um, clients who come over to the new firm that uh, buys out the practice may get a bit of a shock when their bills mm. start coming in. It's, uh, you know, a mm. third or two-thirds higher than what they tr- traditionally have been. Mm. And it can really cause 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 quite a few problems. Large client leakage. Absolutely. <laughs> Namely. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, good. All right. Well, we've really uh, given that area a big run, I guess, um, but the, the unsuited buyers, but I, I think for, for good reason. What else do you have there on your list, uh, Stephen? What else should we be considering other than price that can make or break a deal? Look, as we've just touched upon, and it's probably the most obvious factor, and it's payment terms. So, uh, look, like I said, about 70%, and I'm pulling numbers out of the air here, but 70% even or more of the transactions that come across my desk that I advise upon have some form of deferred payment terms. Now, this can be commissions, this can be earn-out arrangements, it can be vendor finance. Um, it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, Normally, buyers like to put these types of deferred payment arrangements in so that the risk is shared between the seller and the buyer post-transaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and by risk sharing, that means that after completion of a sale, the seller still has risk in the business mm-hmm. that they've just sold. Now, um, some sellers are quite comfortable with this, especially if they're selling off a low base and they think that um, the company that they're selling is going to have significant improvements over the next few years post-transaction. An earn-out arrangement can work quite well in those circumstances if they're confident that mm. the business will improve. Um, however, if there's a, a significant amount of downside risk and uh, buyers look to incorporate, for example, an earn-out into the uh, transaction payment terms, um, that can scare a lot of buy a lot of sellers off accepting uh, deals, even though uh, the deals might have 
pretty reasonable or good prices attached to them. It's a major, major area. The other um, interesting component of this is uh, vendor finance terms and the risk of companies simply um, – running into strife after a deal's yeah. been done. So um, if you're entering as a seller, if you're providing vendor finance, you're essentially becoming a bank. Mm. And um, as part of the process, if you don't have very, very good security over something like real property, like a mm. first mortgage, which nine times out of 10 mm. vendor finance doesn't incorporate security of, of that calibre, uh, there's a risk. If the buyer doesn't turn around and continue to make payments back to you for your finance agreement, you might be out of pocket and have a couple of choices, one of them being litigation, which might cost too much money to make it worthwhile. So major risk to consider. Now, it all comes down to the circumstances. Some sellers are happy to wear risk, happy to wear more risk than, than other sellers. And if they are and if the price is good um, and all the other terms appear reasonable, then they might accept offers like that. Um, on top of that, it depends what's happening with the with the. The, the transaction campaign itself, if there's one buyer and only one buyer, um, unfortunately, from a seller's perspective, they might need to give a few things away and be a little bit more liberal, liberal with what they accept than uh, mm. what they would like to accept. But um, it's a major risk and it can cause issues with transactions. Yeah, absolutely. And I find... In many instances, the, um, the the issue that comes to us uh, from the seller perspectives, you know, sellers are just, you know, they're worried about deferred payments, not so much deferred payments as a whole earnouts in, in particular, um, for, for good reason, because we see lots of issues that occur when trying to ensure that they're triggered if um, if con- if there is no control or not enough control of the seller and uh, in the operation of the business um, up until the point of the trigger of the earnout, and I think that's a really important consideration. Just working through the um, the amount of control that a seller has. Also bearing in mind, though, that things might also not be entirely rosy once um, the buyer and seller start interacting together post-completion because quite often the idea of that uh, is far better than the reality (laughs) in my experience. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Everyone's friends and then when the cheque gets handed over, um, things can go downhill very quickly. But, I mean, having said that, um, it's very easy to dwell on the, the negatives and the risks of deferred payment arrangements. However, I find... Uh, they can actually be quite useful tools to use in order to beef up an offer. Now, what I mean by that is if I have a buyer who's who's offered uh, $5 million for a business in cash on settlement and that's their best possible offer and they won't give us a dollar more, one of the easiest ways to try and squeeze a couple of extra bucks out of them can be to have a discussion around uh, putting in place a vendor finance arrangement or an earnout arrangement in order to derive a little bit more remuneration from the deal moving forward. Now, um, if all you were going to get was $5 million mm. um, in cash on settlement and you can squeeze some extra money through vendor finance or an earn out, then great. Okay, so that's the payment term issue, uh, which in itself does allow a little bit of cre- creativity, obviously. Um, and, and I guess the one point that I, I would make on all of this is that um, quite often this is the point that we will end up with our clients. If they're particularly concerned, coming at it from the perspective of saying, well, what's the 
what's the minimum amount that we would be happy with for the sale of this business? And then considering um, an earn out or, you know, or however it's created on anything on top of that as a bonus is a good way to mentally approach it if that's the benefit that is going to be driven. Of course, we don't want to do that and then relax our approach on making sure we actually try and tie it in as much as we can. But um, but I think that's a good mental approach uh, to have towards uh, earnouts in some instances where there's a lot of concern about whether or not there's enough control to um, ensure that they're triggered. Okay. Um, all right. So, so what else? What else do you have in your tool chest? there, Stephen, of what else um, is important other than just price? Well, look, there's the last thing that I wanted to touch upon, and it, there's a bit of a story behind it, actually. But we love stories. <laughs> love stories. There are just so many things apart from price that can make or break a transaction, and we'll never be able to cover them, uh, regardless of how many how many of these chats we have. But mm. um, I remember clients of mine uh, a couple of years ago. Now we received an offer from a buyer that was located in Texas, over in the United States. My clients were located in Sydney, Australia. And um, the buyer uh, put forward a very generous offer, great terms in general, except for one. And the one term that was just obscene uh, was a term that required the uh, my client's business's premises to be re- relocated from Sydney to Texas and in doing so for all of the key management staff to relocate from Sydney to Texas. Now, um, Jeez. Maybe, maybe if there was one management team member who was a little bit comfortable with that, it might have worked. But um, there were five key management team members. Each of them had uh, set up shop here in Sydney and lived in Sydney for, you know, some forever, some for, for most of their lives with families and commitments and, and the like. Um, it was a really interesting term to get. And it obviously meant that the dealers would never work. Mm. Um and it was a it was a genuine deal breaker for the Texan buyers that we had. They 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 didn't like the idea of having business operations in Australia. Mm. They liked the business. Um, interestingly enough, my clients' businesses oper- business operations uh, were doing work uh, primarily in the United States. So they thought it would make sense to move the entire business over there, but it just didn't work. So there's there's so many. I can understand why, Stephen. I can understand absolutely. why. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And 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 it just goes to demonstrate that there are so many intricate little funny terms that will get thrown into a uh, proposed transaction beyond price mm. that can absolutely be deal breakers. Mm. Um, price is is but there's so many other factors at play, this being one of them and the other factors that we've discussed over the last uh, last two discussions that we've had are, are also important too. Mm. And and so let's just for a moment then touch on the buy side. Um, and, of course, we, we've talked about that a, a bit all the way through, but in particular for buyers out there, do, do you have any tips, um, particularly, I guess, you're sitting here at the, the pointy end where you're with the sellers when they're receiving offers. What is it that buyers can do to make their offer more attractive other than just price? I'm sure price is, is clearly obviously part of it. <laughs> price is absolutely key. From a, from a buyer's point of view, my my view is the big risk that uh, a buyer should try and avoid is putting forward an attractive offer that uh, contains little more than a price 
then running in and spending a hell of a lot of professional fees and time conducting a due diligence to then formulate an extended set of terms which are unreasonable to a seller. So mm. the best way for buyers to navigate this process, I find, is for buyers to be as descriptive as they possibly can when putting forward their initial offer. Um, if, a, if a seller only wants to hear a price, that's fine, but I would still encourage buyers to um, essentially sit down with their advisors, be it their uh, due diligence advisors, their transaction advisors, their legal advisors, and based on what they know prior to due diligence, spell out what the terms will be. Now, uh, typical terms that I find should be addressed are price, obviously, but how are you going to pay the price? What type of payment terms would you like to incorporate into a potential deal? where are you going to get your funding from? Uh, sellers love it when buyers put forward offers saying, uh, we have a finance arrangement that's been long-standing with Westpac Banking Corporation and we have a credit line with them for $10.5 million. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. A seller sees that and they think, wow, these buyers have the capacity to buy and they can complete a transaction. Mm-hmm. Um, also spelling out uh, what, the, what your plans are as a buyer uh, for the future role of the directors, shareholders and management team? What, what role do you want them to take? Um, normally buyers have some idea as to how they see these things playing out and if you can provide an indication when placing forward your offer, a seller will be able to better understand your offer and be able to better understand whether they uh, are interested in conducting a due diligence exercise with you. And um, as a buyer, it's important to understand that um, the, the initial offer is generally speaking, 99 times out of 100, non-binding and subject to due diligence. So the process of due diligence allows you to refine the terms further and to adjust based on what you find out. But at least at the outset, if you can put forward a very uh, all-encompassing offer that discusses price but discusses a whole host of other terms, um, the seller will be far more comfortable with you as a buyer and uh You'll, you'll be mitigating your risks as a, as a buyer um, and, 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 and understanding whether the seller is on board for what you want to put forward or not at the outset. Mm. Absolutely fabulous uh, ideas there. Some really um, sensible uh, and wise words, Stephen. I just want to thank you so much uh, for this two-part series. I think it's um, it's really been interesting. We, we've uh, touched both on the buy side and the sell side, I think it's really good to have these discussions about all of the other things that are relevant other than just price. Obviously, as lawyers who are quite often sitting in the depth of the detail, we see firsthand everything else that can be relevant other than price. But I just think it's really good uh, to have, you know, someone who's sitting at the pointy end of negotiating the transaction who who also is on board with this idea that there's so many things that are, are really fundamentally important other than just price. And some of the best transactions that I have seen have been where, well, I guess, number one, obviously, where there's competitive tension because that <laughs> can be a very important uh, element in making sure you're getting the right deal is in the sellers actually not choosing the highest price uh, and going with better terms because I think at the end of the day, that's something that really uh, can be the measure of a transaction that ends up going along a lot smoother um, and quicker because at the end of the day, you, you know, no one is happy with these long, arduous processes, particularly if they have a risk of falling over at the end. Absolutely, absolutely. Preparation's key, and and um, the, the the success or failure of transactions 
um, fortunately or unfortunately, is often a detail-oriented exercise. Um, so <laughs> having your eyes wide open to these things is so important, as, 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 um, as I know is your experience, Joanna. So it's been yeah. an absolute pleasure. Brilliant. Um, Stephen, thank you. I absolutely love the discussion. Um, How do our listeners contact you if they're interested in um, getting information about working with you or or talking about this area more? Look, thanks, Joanna. Uh, I'm a director at Quinn M&A, so your listeners can either Google Quinn M&A or visit us at www.quinnma.com.au. Excellent. Wonderful. Well, look, thank you, Stephen. Thank you so much for coming and joining us for not one, but two episodes all on this interesting topic. Thanks, Joanna. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here. I've enjoyed every minute of it. So thanks for having me. Well, that's it for part two of our two-part series with Stephen Groves from Quinn M&A, all about why everything other than price makes or breaks a deal. I hope you found the two parts uh, interesting listening. Of course, once again, you've just listened to part two. So if you haven't heard part one, then just get back in this podcast series and you'll find it just before this episode. And if you'd like more information about this topic, then head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com where you'll be able to link straight through to Stephen at Quinn M&A. And of course, on our website, you'll also be able to find details of how to contact our lawyers at Aspect Legal if you or your clients would like to discuss any legal aspects of sales or acquisitions. Well, that's it. Thanks again for listening in. You've been listening to Joanna Oki and the Deal Room Podcast, a podcast very proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. See you next time. Aspect Legal has a number of great services that help businesses prepare for a sale or acquisition to help them prepare in advance and to get transaction ready. We've also got a range of services to help guide businesses through the sale and acquisitions process. We work with clients both big and small and have different types of services depending on size and complexity. We provide a free consultation to discuss your proposed sale or acquisition. So see our show notes on how to book a time to speak with us or head over to our website at aspectlegal.com.au. Ladies and gentlemen, that will conclude this evening's entertainment. Thanks for listening to The Deal Room Podcast. To find out more about this episode and other episodes in the series, check out the show notes or head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com.au. 